Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week we started Luke chapter 6, and we had a little bit of a Pharisee conflict. Actually, we had two. In both circumstances, the Pharisees were trying to judge Jesus and his disciples based on their man-made rules. Just because Jesus didn't obey their rules did not mean that he didn't fully and completely obey God. Now, since I just used like a double or triple or quadruple, I'm not even sure how many negative there, let me put it more plainly. Jesus did not and does not care about man-made rules but he did fully obey God's law. Today's passage doesn't have the same kind of conflict. In fact, we're not going to see a single Pharisee or scribe in our verses today. So with that, let's get into Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Quote, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, end quote. We can see that Jesus has a really big day ahead of him. When the morning arrives, he will choose which of his disciples will be named apostles. We sometimes use the titles almost interchangeably. We do that because in the Bible, we are usually talking about the twelve, right? All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Warren Wearsby, in his book, Be Compassionate, defines the two terms quite succinctly and accurately. Quote, a disciple is a learner, an apprentice, while an apostle is a chosen messenger sent with a special commission. Jesus had many disciples, but only 12 handpicked apostles. End quote. These apostles were going to be the leaders of his church, the ones who would follow Jesus the closest so that they could be the leaders and the teachers that this movement needed them to be. Twelve apostles reflected the twelve tribes of Israel. Of course, later there would be Matthias, who was chosen by lots in Acts one twenty six. He replaced Judas, you might remember. Then after that, we would see that Paul would also be numbered among the apostles. But that's it. There are many church traditions today that use the title of apostle for certain leaders in their churches or denominations. While it's probably well-meaning, I think it's a bit misleading. There is a unique office that Jesus established. Their commission was to lead and establish the early church. Church leaders today can be pastors, they can be elders, they can be deacons or some other ministry leader. But there is really no modern-day spot to be an apostle. Today, I am a little bit worried, a little bit concerned that we are too concerned with titles and honors. Maybe we could all be content to have simple titles like disciple, follower, servant. But I digress. It's tough to say how many disciples Jesus had at this time. But if he's choosing 12 then obviously he has more than 12. It'd be a really awkward scene if it was Jesus and 12 guys, and he's like, all right, guys, big decision ahead. I'm going to choose 12 of you. And you can see guys like numbering, like using all their fingers and a couple toes to be like, all right, we got 12. We've only seen Jesus intentionally call a few people at this point. 
You might remember in chapter 5, he called Peter, Peter's brother Andrew, then James and John. And later in chapter 5, he called Levi the tax collector, who is also known as Matthew. I believe those are the only five called by name up at this point in the book of Luke. But we've also seen Jesus heal the sick. We've seen him heal the paralytic, the leper. We've seen him cast out demons from those who were afflicted by them. We've seen him preach in synagogues. So through all of that, it doesn't feel like a stretch that there would have been many people likely following Jesus, likely many candidates for apostleship. Though there are likely many, Jesus only seeks 12. And what a huge decision that is. When you think about starting a movement, and that's what Jesus is doing. This is a movement. Who the leaders are, who the people around him are going to be, is a big decision. It could be very impactful. So how does Jesus handle such a big moment? Well, he goes out by himself in solitude, and he prays all night long. The words, quote, and all night he continued in prayer to God, end quote, are so clear. Jesus routinely made solitude and prayer a part of his life and ministry. I know it sounds a bit cliche, but there is a saying that is very true. Prayer should be our first choice, not our last resort. Jesus went to the Father to have his cup filled, to be restored, to gain the guidance he needed from the Father as he prepared to make big decisions. At this stage, I think it is important for us to remember the humanity of Jesus. Yes, he is the Son of God, a member of the Trinity. We have an episode about that, if you'd like to go check that out. He is fully God in the flesh. He is 100% God, yet he is also 100% human. To say he is 50-50 is not accurate at all. He is 100% God, 100% man, and he is 0% bound by our rules of math, okay? Remember, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, quote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, end quote. Jesus emptied himself. He took on limitations. He sovereignly placed himself in weakness, requiring the Father's aid and intervention. The Father was going to be his refuge, was going to be his guide, was going to be his strength. And listen, what we see in this is that Jesus is so gracious. He could have gone about this being the Messiah business any way he decided. Yet he did it in a way where he could perfectly model for us how life ought to be for the believer. And that is a life where we live in utter dependence upon God, seeking him with the big, seeking him for the small. If we were in Jesus' sandals, I mean, how many of us would have been tempted to make a spreadsheet of all the disciples, writing down their pros and writing down their cons and all these other things so that we could make the most educated, best choice possible, right? How many of us would then take that choice and ask God to bless the choice we've already made? In other words, isn't it tempting to just do whatever we want and ask God to bless it? Isn't it tempting to treat Him more like our genie in a bottle than our Lord and Savior? Not Jesus. That's not what He did. He gets the Father involved right from the start. Writing out our choices are not bad things. I like spreadsheets to help me process things. That will actually come up later in verses 14 through 16. 
But perhaps to be following Jesus's lead here, perhaps before we make the spreadsheet, before we write out pros and cons, before we weigh out all the options, before we make our decision, before we do any of that, perhaps we should go to the Father and say, my God and my Savior, what is your will? What do you want me to do? Start with God and move on from there. If he is really Lord of your life, that means he is in charge. That means what he says goes. Let us live life accordingly and take the big decisions, the small decisions, all the decisions to him. Not just to check a prayer box like, oh, look what I did, but with a sincere heart, one that actually desires to know the will of the Lord. I mean, consider the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, quote, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight, end quote. In other words, hey, do you want to go the right way? Do you want to make the right choice? Do you want to be prepared for the fork in the road that's coming? That means you should trust in the Lord with all you got. Don't lean on what you think sounds smart. Trust in the Lord. He knows better. And if you trust in Him by actively putting the choice in His hands, He's not going to lead you astray. He's not going to leave you high and dry. Trust in the Lord. Submit your path to Him, and He will make it straight. Trust and seek. Now on to Luke chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. Quote, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. End quote. A list of the apostles appears several times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, they all have lists for us. So I made a spreadsheet to compare the order of the list. They're spreadsheets again, right? But I was curious. I was curious to see if the list would be the exact same order, if they'd be similar, if they'd have nothing to do with one another. I was just curious. None of the orders are exactly the same, but they're all strikingly similar. For example, Peter is always first on list. All four lists have Peter first. And Judas Iscariot, he's always last, which probably isn't too surprising. Andrew, James, and John are always numbers two through four. Two lists have Andrew, then James and John, and then two lists have Andrew after James and John, but they're always two through four. Philip is always the fifth apostle listed. Bartholomew is six and three of the four and seven in the other. Matthew and Thomas, they switch places from list to list, as does Simon the Zealot with Judas the son of James, who's also known as Thaddeus. And the other James is always number nine. So they're not exactly the same order, but they're all very, very similar. All that to say, I'm not sure what that means, but all the lists are very similar. Perhaps there was a normal order early believers memorized. Perhaps there was a general consensus on the order of their authority, Peter being the first, Judas being the last. One thing that was pretty clear is that Peter was seen as the man in charge. He was number one on the list, and Judas Iscariot probably didn't have very many fans. Though these men had so many differences, one thing is clear. On paper, they would not have been anyone's dream team. Yet they are the ones who the master chose to represent him in the office of apostle. Do you remember in Acts, when Peter and John were before the council? Do you remember how they were described? Acts 4.13 says, quote, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, end quote. 
The most striking thing about these two men is that they had been with Jesus. Remember, they were fishermen, which means they were, as the religious leaders perceived, they were uneducated. They were common. There was nothing that the world would look at these guys and say they're special. But what the religious leaders could see is that they had been with Jesus, and that is pretty special in itself. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, quote, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. End quote. Paul is telling them and us to consider Christ in their own lives. What do they bring to the table? They didn't have wisdom. They didn't have power. They didn't have nobility. No, in all reality, they were people much of the world would not have given a second look to. But God did give them a second look. God chose what the world may think little of. And through the power of God, those who didn't bring much to the table could be involved in something that literally changes the eternal destinations of many. They are establishing a kingdom. Paul kept going in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, quote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, End quote. Paul is telling us he's no exception to the rule. When he came to Corinth, he didn't try to be sophisticated. He didn't come armed with some fancy theological words. No, he taught simply the gospel. And through this powerful message, lives were changed. Remember, Romans 1.16, Paul says, But I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul is telling the church at Corinth the most significant thing about them and the most significant thing about Paul is that they had been with Jesus. Just like Peter and John, they had been with Jesus. That's how God works. The most significant thing about any of his followers are their closeness to him. We're underdogs in so many ways, yet so abundantly over-the-top favored, for we have had the incredible opportunity to be with Jesus. If you look through Scripture, you will find a long-lasting record of God using unlikely people to do extraordinary things. And they were not able to do extraordinary things by their own awesomeness, but by the power of God working in them. Just like Paul, just like Peter and John, the other apostles, just like the church at Corinth, just like Paul, all from the power of God. Let me give you some examples of this. Abraham, Father Abraham, he was a pagan worshiper when God called him, and super old. Jacob was a deceiver. Joseph was a slave and a prisoner. Moses was a murderer in hiding. Joshua grew up in slavery. Ehud was from the least of the tribes. And ironically, he was a left-handed man in a tribe whose name means son of the right hand. Gideon was a doubter. David was the youngest brother and a poor shepherd boy. Jonah was vindictive. 
We could keep going, but you get the point, right? God chooses those others typically wouldn't. He doesn't call people because they're awesome. Actually, it is through His grace and His power that He makes them awesome. Another way of saying this is that God doesn't call those who are ready. He makes ready those He calls. He invites them to be with Him. He invites them to receive the honor of the most impressive thing about them is that they could be with Jesus. One of the things that can make me love a movie or a show is quality character development. How you see the author reveal obvious flaws in certain characters and how that character, often through hardship, overcomes that which held them down and they become stronger in the end. The author who is able to do this most beautifully and most compellingly is God our Father. He writes the best stories. I know it's tempting for us to have little pity parties over our weaknesses and our shortcomings, but consider this. Sometimes it is the thorn in the flesh, as Paul would say, that gives us access to the power we need to honor and glorify God in this life. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. He says, quote, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. End quote. We need to see that our potential for kingdom impact actually has nothing to do with what we can bring to the table and everything to do what He can do with limited people. What an unlimited God can do with limited people is the main point of the story. If you feel totally unqualified, totally unready, then you may just be in the right spot to be used by a holy and righteous and unlimited God. Like Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. My strength comes from the same place yours does, the same place Paul's did, the same place the apostle's strength came from. That is, we have the opportunity to be with Jesus. So be of good courage. His grace is enough. His invitation is for you to spend time with Him so that others may recognize that you too have been with Jesus. These 12 men Jesus chose on that day, they may not have been special to the world, but they were special to Jesus. And it is because they were special to Jesus, they were loved by Jesus. He was going to spend the time with them to prepare them to turn the world upside down. And he can do the same thing with you. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.